Hello and welcome to episode 137 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson and this week marks a kind of milestone for me. Over the past four years, I've done audio production for this show, I've produced it, and I've been a guest a couple of times. But this week is my first episode as host, and what an episode, since this week our guest is NASA engineer and all-round fascinating human, Kurt Lloyd. But before we get started, we do have a few announcements. CodeCamp Romania is presenting Tony Kay teaching a master class in functional programming on the JVM with Clojure and Scala. Looks like this is a bit of a traveling roadshow with a session on March 20th in Cruz Napoca. I hope that's how you say the name of that city. And another on March 21st and in, and I think it's pronounced Yash, and it's spelled L-A-S-I. But if you have any doubts, go on over to codecamp.ro for all the details. There's still time to get your tickets for Closure Sync, um, which is happening in New Orleans on February 15th and 16th. Head on over to closuresync.com for that. That's C-L-O-J-U-R-E-S-Y-N-C.com. And Closure D, or maybe it's Closured, is happening on February 23rd in Berlin. Go on over to www.closured.de, that's C-L-O-J-U-R-E-D.de for more details. I don't see any Closure Bridge events scheduled, um, but keep an eye on closurebridge.org for updates. Well, that's about it. So on the Kurt and the universe and everything in episode 137 of the Cognicast. Here we go. Hello and welcome to the Cognicast. Today is January 29th, 2018 and I'm Russ Olson. And today it's my great pleasure to welcome Kurt Lloyd to the show. Thanks for being with us, Kurt. Thank you for having me, Russ. It's a pleasure. Ah, great. So uh, this was basically the hardest interview I think I have set up in a very long time. We had everything go wrong from mail ending up in spam folders to... I had the world's worst head cold at some point when we were going to do this interview. There was a government shutdown, and so right. I, w- I was sort of waiting for an alien invasion this morning, but it hasn't come off, so I'm really, really, really glad we could do this. Um, and I think it will be apparent to our listeners why I'm so glad we're doing this. If you um, maybe could spend a minute and tell us about your day job, Kurt. Sure. Um... I would love to. I'm a software engineer for NASA at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And um, just to kind of um, give a high-level um, overview for your listeners uh, about what NASA's doing, if I, could, uh, if I could start out with that, we're actually, NASA is actually planning on going to Mars in the 2030s, with not just with robots, but with people. And I want to start out with that because a lot of the general public don't realize that. And... Um, so when we do send humans to Mars in the 2030s, it's not going to be for short camping trips. It actually takes six months to send um, a, a mission to send humans or anything else for that matter to Mars and six months for them to come back. So we're not going to stay for, you know, just a few weeks or even just a few months when, you know, the trip there and the trip back takes that long. We're actually our plans right now are to spend a year and a half on the surface of Mars working and living there. And so the the group that I work in at NASA is focused on how we can live off the land on Mars and use the resources that are there on the surface of Mars. So that's kind of a, a, an overview of my work. I'm a, I'm a software engineer, um, but we uh, all my coworkers are all different disciplines. We have mechanical, electrical, software, um, systems engineers, and uh, stuff like that. 
So, so having heard that, I think we can now describe every uh, person and mo mostly our audience is software engineers in this podcast. I think we can probably, I can probably safely say that everyone who has just heard what you had to say is now insanely jealous of, <laughs> yeah. of, of what you're doing. I, I, I get that a lot. Yeah. Um, but so, so I, I, I'm, I'm, we're certainly going to talk about going to Mars and living off the land and that sort of thing. But let me, let's back up a little bit and let me ask you our opening question, which is, can you tell us about some experience of art that you've had? And it really can be anything that, that you want it to be. So some experience of art. Sure. Um, I actually have a couple different um, experiences. Um, my, um, my major one is that I was really, really shy and introverted as a child, really, really a quiet kid. Um, but at age 11, um, there was a community theater in uh, a children's community theater in my town, and a lot of my friends were were um, in the show. And so my sister and I also kind of probably were pressured by my parents. I don't remember for sure. Um, and so we acted and sang on stage in front of a pretty good sized audience, hundreds of people. And it turns out I still do that as an adult. I really got hooked on acting and singing um, in front of crowds. And so to tie that to NASA, um, since NASA is a government agency, um, you know, we, we don't work for profit. We're, um, we're not a commercial um, entity. We're not allowed to, like, buy ad space on the TV or the radio or, you know, ads in magazines or anything like that. Uh -huh. um, so... Um, but but NASA does want to educate the public and keep the public informed about what we're doing. And so NASA really encourages all its employees to do outreach um, in the local community and talk to the students in the schools and, and the adults in the in the community. Um, and uh, NASA um, also encourages us to even go out to, f to further destinations outside their community as long as it doesn't cost NASA um, very much money and as long as it doesn't impact you know your daily work. So I notice that a lot of my coworkers shy away from speaking to crowds, even local, you know, local um, events at, you know, schools and regardless of whether it's students or adults, um, I kind of seem to be, you know, one of the one of the few um, people in my group that, that really love to get out there and talk about NASA um, to uh, to groups. And I think my my theater experience um as a young child and continuing to do that as an adult really kind of has given me an edge over my coworkers in that area. It's given me, you know, confidence. And, um, I think it, it, it cha actually changed my personality, um, from a super shy introverted kid to, you know, more of an outgoing, um, personality. So I think it's changed me for the good. Well, that's, that's great. I do. Uh, th there's this statistic that you hear all the time and I don't know that it's true, um, that, most people, like when they take surveys, most people will list public speaking ahead of death in a list of things that they're afraid of. Um, yeah, I, I've heard that. I don't know if it's, uh, yeah. you know, one of those myths um, right. Or, right. Or, or whether it's real. Uh, um, well, as I some... actually have a, another example, um, if we have time. Yeah, go ahead. Because um, I do woodworking, you know, as a hobby. And so mostly I just make sawdust, but you know, I, like to say, I like to say that I, you know, do stuff, make, build stuff out of wood. Um, I'm afraid and, I, I make sawdust and blood, which is, a and blood, <laughs> I try to, I try to keep, keep away from making blood. Um, and sometimes, actually a lot of times I hear people comparing, um, the creation of software to like building a bridge and they try and make, you know, analogies and, and comparisons. Um, and so I, I think about, you know, um, in, in woodworking, sometimes you can just start cutting up wood and nailing pieces together and you can actually make something. Um, and, you know, sometimes it works out okay, but it, it, it is kind of easy to mess up and actually have to scrap things and have to start over. So even uh, for really simple projects like a small birdhouse, for example, um, I'll actually draw up very, very simple plans, you know, just get something out on scrap paper, um, before I start. Um, and that usually, uh, does save time and money in the long run, I think. So, um, in software, in the software world, even when I'm working on what seems to be, you know, a really simple software project, um, I always 
make sure I kind of clear my mind and sit down and I sketch up like a, a simple flow diagram or a simple architecture diagram, just something like that. Um, and I, I feel that it does save uh, me going down, you know, a wrong path and saves rework in the long run. So yeah. I always do that. So I think that's probably good advice. That, that's great. I, I, I do think that, that uh, it's unfortunate that in software, maybe in most human endeavors, we tend to think in, a, of, in extremes. And so, uh, you know, you sort of tell a software engineer today that, oh, you need to sit down and design something. And they immediately think of this enormous heavyweight you know, 3,000 pages of document design documentation kind of thing. And, um, or alternatively, you don't do that and people think that you're doing no upfront work at all. And clearly, mm -hmm. it seems like the, uh, the, the happy medium is somewhere in the middle. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, I agree. There's every, there's a whole range of in the spectrum and everybody falls somewhere in that spectrum and every project falls somewhere in that spectrum. And, you know, everybody has to kind of choose up front where they want to land. Yeah. You know. All right. Well, let me uh, uh, let, let's go back to Mars here. OK. Uh, so so I think I think if I remember correctly, you said that that the plan is to get to Mars in 2030s. Was that the right? Is that the right year? In the 2030s. Yeah. It's it's a decade. It's not a year. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so, yeah, NASA's plans, you know, in the far out years, um, they get pretty vague. They don't they don't pick exact years. Right. You know, we and and to in case in case your listeners are wondering why we're so vague with our planning um, in the out years, is that you know we uh, we we only get a budget a year at a time. Um, we're we're told about our year's worth of budget. Um, you know, when the fiscal year starts, and then we start um, trying to request the next year's budget, and um, so to to actually nail down exactly when we're going to launch a certain rocket 10 or 20 years from now. Um, that's just, that's just wasting everybody's time. Um, yeah, and, uh, think... so we, we have to be really vague, uh, with, with stuff like that and until it gets funded and then we can actually start putting, um, a detailed schedule together and figure out when it's actually going to happen. Well, I suspect that, that the difference between NASA and, and people in life, you know, just ordinary individuals and commercial entities is that you're willing to admit you don't know, because I think ask anybody where they're going to be in 20 or 30 years, what they'll be doing. Yeah, nobody knows, right? Right. Um, so you said that it's going to take six months to get to Mars and six months to get home, and that makes sense. Mars is pretty far away, and that the plan is to spend 18 months on Mars. Why Why 18 months, not 17 months or 15 months or 21 months? That's a really good question. Um, the, uh, the trip to and from Mars is best done when Earth and Mars are closer together. So Earth is going around the sun, Mars is also going around the sun, and so there are there are times where Earth and Mars are closer together, and there are times where Earth and Mars are farther apart, like on opposite sides oh, of right, the sun, sure. for example. So we, uh, um, we always try and plan our missions to Mars, our actual transits to and from Mars, when Earth and Mars are closer, which saves on, you know, it saves on gas, you know, <laughs> rocket fuel, uh, and, you know, it just helps with the planning, um, saves money. Anything, uh, anytime you're planning a really kind of big, expensive trip like that, um, you, uh, you don't want to waste money. Um, you want to be as efficient as possible with the, the government resources that you have. You want to spend more money on the payload and less money on the gas, I think, is probably the, the best way to explain it. Right, right. Also, so if, if you're sending a, a robot, an autonomous robot, the robot's not really going to care a whole lot, although this isn't completely true. It's not going to um, care how long the trip takes, you know, but you have to design for that, obviously. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when we, when we start sending, sending humans, we're going to make sure that we limit their um their transit time for various reasons for you know exposure to um cosmic rays and you know things like that well but i i would imagine there's that and then and food is, and food sure <laughs> and you, food. Got, you got to send yeah, a lot of a lot more tabasco sauce when you're when you're going further yeah. right yeah there's definitely a lot of variables but uh food and 
and gas and just comfort of your astronauts, those all play into it. Yeah. But there's also, you know, probably a hundred other variables there. Yeah. But so I think if, if I understand correctly, you're the, the thing that you have been focused on more than anything else is where do we do when we get there? Um, yeah. Yeah. And how do we prepare um, equipment and habitats and um, get resources ready on Mars for when the astronauts show up so that um, so let me kind of back up a little bit when. When we do send humans to Mars, they're going to need consumables, food we've already talked about. They're going to need oxygen. They're going to need water. Um, they will also need rocket fuel when they get there because the rocket fuel is necessary in order for them to lift off of Mars 18 months later and you know start their journey back to Earth. And so the scientists at NASA have done lots of uh, simulations and calculations, and they've figured out... Um, that it costs a lot of money. Well, they knew this already, but it, it costs. <laughs> they figured out exactly how how much mass you have to launch from Earth in order to land a certain amount of mass on Mars. Um, the number I've heard is it is you have to launch 236 kilograms, if I'm remembering, 226 kilograms off the surface of Earth in order to land one single kilogram um, safely on the surface of Mars. So the gear ratio, as NASA likes to call it, um, from Earth to Mars is uh, Earth surface to Mars surface is 226 to 1. So when you start thinking, which, which you know, we've used that gear ratio over the years to send small rovers to Mars and small right. landers to Mars um, and then larger rovers to Mars. But now that we're starting to think about sending um, human explorers they're going to need more infrastructure landed on Mars. So we're going to have to send a lot more um, payloads to Mars um, before the before we send the astronauts. And we're also going to have to worry about all the consumables that the astronauts need, the, the breathing air and the water and everything else. So I, I'm not a rocket scientist, but, but it seems to me that if you're sending people to Mars and it's like a 200 to 1 ratio to get the people to Mars, at some point they're going to want to come back home. And if it's another, it's probably less because Mars is a smaller planet, but there's got to be some similar ratio coming back, which... Yeah, there is a ratio coming back, and I don't know the number. I apologize. Right. But um, but whatever that number is, if it's maybe 50 to 1, you now have, have mathematics working very badly against you if you're shipping everything to Mars to come back. Which, mm -hmm. which I guess is, is, so is the idea that you would manufacture the going home fuel on Mars? That's exactly right. That's what I was, I was leading into. Ah. Um, because um, when they calculated how much fuel they would need, you're not going to bring, you're not going to bring anything back to Earth that isn't completely necessary. One, you're going to bring the astronauts back. Two, you know, what whatever they need, you know, to, to stay alive, um, and stay entertained, you know, on the six month journey back, you might bring some Mars rocks, but you're not going to bring like literal tons of Mars rocks back. You're going to bring some bags, some satchels, you know, because, because it all, it all costs a lot of money and, and, um, it works against you. And so the calculation that uh, the scientists have come up with for how much rocket fuel we would need to send and land on the surface of Mars in order to bring our astronauts back. It was it was significant. I don't want to say any numbers because because I don't know. I, have, I don't know the numbers. Um, let's say it was a ton of rocket fuel. I don't know what the number is, but let's say it was a ton. That right. means we would have to launch from Earth with 226 tons of rocket fuel just to get that single ton of fuel landed on the surface of Mars. So you can see how the the numbers become really big really quickly, but so scientists um, looked at, well, you know, what is on Mars that we could actually use? And some really smart guys at NASA um, figured out that we could um, actually create rocket fuel on the surface of Mars. We can create liquid oxygen and liquid methane on the surface of Mars using the resources that are there, which is just amazing. And uh, that is the sort of technology that NASA is working really hard on right now in order to 
get a uh, rocket fuel factory on the surface of Mars long before the uh, the human at, um, the human missions um, will actually need that rocket fuel. We would, even though they need the rocket fuel at the end of their mission, mm-hmm. we want it we want it there and waiting and ready and given the thumbs up that everything's working properly even before we um, lift off. Oh, that makes uh, from sense. the surface of Earth, because sure. we want we don't want to risk our, our astronauts' lives, obviously. Wow. Um, so so tell me so let's keep drilling down then, if that's okay. Tell yeah. me uh, your your so clearly this is is got to be a massive enterprise. Uh, uh, you know every everything from chemists to uh, rocket scientists to I I can't imagine. So tell me what what your bit of this uh thing is okay um well there a lot of people don't know that there's well actually a lot of people a lot of your listeners may know because it's been in the news recently that uh there's this it looks like there's a significant amount of water on mars it's frozen beneath the surface but it's there yes that that, that got some 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 uh headlines recently Right, kind um, of. Uh, we, it's kind of a permafrost layer or something, is what they're they're coming yeah. up with. Yeah, it's under it's under the the topsoil. Um, if if that's what you, if, I'll just call it I'll just call it topsoil or right, dirt. Right. The scientists uh, like to use a, a word called regolith um, to uh, uh, to indicate dirt on another planetary body. Like the moon is covered with regolith, which is like crushed crushed volcanic rock. It's a real fine powder. And Mars, um, some of it is covered with a, a crushed volcanic rock, and some of it is, is more like a solid rock. Um, so if I do if I do say the word regolith, now you know what I'm talking about. It's basically right. a fancy scientific word for dirt. Um, so there there is ice um, on Mars, and there this, this is this this just made headlines. But um, scientists have known for years and years and years for using different scientific instruments on different spacecraft to figure out that there was that there was water on Mars but the most this most recent discovery um, it made headlines because um, it actually showed how thick these layers of ice were because the sensor actually looked at a sheer cliff face mm-hmm. um, and could actually see a pretty Pretty thick layers of ice um, sticking out of this clear shift base, which is which is pretty exciting. And so now, so water is is one resource. Um, I, I we talked a lot about rocket fuel, and water is obviously not rocket fuel, but um, the Mars atmosphere is mostly made up of carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. And so you can the chemists get all excited because they can magically combine the H2O and water and the CO2 and carbon dioxide um, using a very special chemical reaction and they can generate methane um, and water as a byproduct. So it's a very um, quote unquote safe uh, uh, chemical reaction. Uh, it, it creates what we want, um, uh, methane, and then the byproduct is not dangerous. It's just water and it can be actually recycled back back into the input in order to save the resources you need to input. It's a it's a pretty amazing um, coincidence that we can make rocket fuel using the resources that are on Mars. Um, and so, uh, if we can, if the if the if these ice layers are super thick, like we're currently, um, the current sensors are telling us, and the carbon dioxide is so freely available just by sucking it in from the atmosphere, um, that means that uh, we have a pretty good chance of of creating rocket fuel and so the lab that I work in is is working on all the different uh, pieces of a rocket fuel factory we're working on um, excavators that can go out um, out into the field and dig down and try and uh, excavate or dig up this uh, these ice patches and we're working on um, the chemistry equipment that is going to be able to turn the water molecules and the um, carbon dioxide molecules into liquid methane, um, and uh, and and what's great about this system that we're kind of working on, kind of at a prototype uh, level right now okay. in in the lab. It's all very kind of early prototype 
uh, level. But uh, another great thing about the system is, um, so it, it one of its inputs is like the dirt, the regolith that you've dug up, and it could and it hopefully will have you know these water this water ice kind of embedded in it and mixed in with it. Right. But then once you once you uh, are able to pull all the all the water molecules out of that, you would think that this dry dirt, this dry regolith is just a waste product that you just got to get rid of and just just make a dump pile um, out of the way. But there's another group, there's another part of my lab that is focused on what can we do with this dry dirt that, you know, has been all the research, all the, the useful resources, quote unquote, have been pulled out of it. Well, they're actually looking into um, uh, construction projects um, right. on the surface using this dry material, like building, um, building like 3D structures uh, using like 3D printing methods or building uh, two-dimensional structures like roads or landing pads um, by using like a, um, a tile uh, kind of method where you bake this regolith back into a solid form and uh, then you lay down tiles in order to make a, a, a solid, hard uh, pad-like or road-like surface. So there's, there's a lot of different projects going on, a lot of different small prototype projects going on um, around NASA that we hope to eventually bring together into a, an actual final uh, mission to send to Mars and create rocket fuel and create um, garages and landing pads and roads and things like that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we, we met at a conference, so I don't know, two, or, two years or so ago now. Yes. And at that conference, you were talking about, and now I, I can sort of put the pieces together. You're ta you were talking, I think, about uh, sort of swarm robots, small maybe exploration robots. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, that's actually one of my favorite projects because it was kind of my very first one. It was my it was my baby, so to speak, um, when I moved from uh, um, into kind of a researchy area of NASA versus the um, uh, design and development side of NASA. So I kind of skipped over um, an important part of this process. I jumped right into um, sending a, a, a rocket fuel factory to Mars in order to make rocket fuel. But before you do that, you need to know where to dig. So you need to do prospecting first mm. and kind of figure out, like like right now, the, the headline that came out last week about this these really thick sheets of ice on Mars, that was actually sensed from orbit, and so our confidence our confidence level is pretty high based on the sensors you know that we've put on the spacecraft. But um, it's always uh, it's always so NASA NASA is always very very conservative, and we want to make sure before we you know right. uh, we want to lower risk as much as possible. Well, particularly so, when you're talking about sending people somewhere, right? Right, but be yeah. yeah, before we send the people, um, we want to make sure for sure um, that it is water by sending you know something down to the surface that can maybe drill down and you know pull up a core sample and very verify. You know, we call it ground truth. We we do a lot of sensing from orbit, mm -hmm. both here here on Earth and you know around the solar system. Um, but if we before we send a bunch of robots to go excavate and dig and look for the you know try and dig up this ice, um, it's important um, because we don't want to waste that money on those projects. It's important for us to verify that the ice is is in this particular spot at least. Um, if that's where we're planning on sending. Um, and so uh, the Swarmies, the Swarmy project is a swarm of small and inexpensive robots that um, they're basically very lightweight, even almost disposable, you could say, rovers. Mm -hmm. um, they're kind of, you know, like a hobby uh, remote controlled car is, is what we came up with. So, and they're, they're a prospecting robot. So are we talking something that is about the size of like a little, maybe maybe a foot or a third of a meter long kind of thing? Like physically, how big are we we talking? Well, uh, the Swarmies are not a funded mission 
NASA mission to Mars. Okay. So the you know what we actually send if, if it becomes a funded um, mission to Mars, then they would decide how big these rovers were going to be and and you know how inexpensive each one would be. But what what my research project was a few years ago for the Swarmies was mm -hmm. to um, use hobby parts, hobby robot parts, which basically, uh, um, if you know anybody that has a remote controlled car or sure. remote controlled, you know, race car or truck, um, we basically built some of some of those using hobby parts. Um, and the uh, the magic of the so so the 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 hardware of the of the Swarmy robot wasn't really the um, the focus of the project. The focus of that project was the onboard software. We specifically um, we partnered with uh, the folks at the University of New Mexico who were looking into biologically inspired software algorithms, All right. um, specifically search algorithms. Um, and those, so they had modeled. Actually, they had gone out into um, the wilderness and studied ants. Literally sat there and watched ants and took notes. They actually put little markers on, you know, some ants and, um, you know, followed them around and basically mapped exactly where they went, exactly how they moved, um, how they behaved. And then went back to the lab. And when when all their data was kind of compiled, they realized that they um, they could probably um, they could probably uh, simulate the way uh, an entire ant colony acts and behaves in a computer simulation. Right. Um, and so they did that and they perfected that. And then they decided, well, let's now try and take this algorithm and put it on some small robots. Um, and so they created these tiny little robots that are about the size of, the, of your hand. Okay. Um, and the onboard computer for that robot was uh, uh, um, an iPod, so they just needed a camera and a, a small CPU, and um, so they created this, these, this robot swarm in their lab. And the uh, when they put this uh, this algorithm that they had um, come up with onto the robots, um, so, the robots so would go out and look for resources and pretend to bring the resources back to the nest. And so they um, basically came up with a, a software algorithm for a swarm of robots that used very little processing power, very little um, uh, memory, uh, very few um, and very inexpensive sensors, very inexpensive robot. And so what we did was we uh, took their algorithm and put it in a, a bigger, more rugged robot and we added some features that we think that we thought NASA might be able uh, to use features that were applicable to NASA, like um, looking for water on Mars um, and um, being able to we added to their system um, obstacle avoidance, which uh, wasn't part of their research project. But obviously, NASA, um, if we sent autonomous robots to Mars and just had them going off you know, hundreds right, of robots right. going off looking for, for water or whatever resource, um, they would need to obviously avoid obstacles. So that was that research project. Um, and it actually it was successful uh, as a research project and it proved that this biologically inspired algorithm is something that could potentially work on Mars for looking for resources or uh -huh. even br bringing those resources back home. The cool thing about the, the bringing the resources back home is that the ant algorithm uses um, like a digital pheromone trail. It simulates a pheromone trail without right. actually leaving a chemical on the ground, obviously. Um, and that's a way to um, for one robot to ask for help from other from the other robots without directly communicating with the other robots. So it actually would scale if you if you needed to use this algorithm in hundreds or thousands of robots. So it's a it's a pretty cool. Um, research uh, experiment that was successful enough that I hope NASA will pick it up and and fund it uh, as a prospecting mission on Mars someday it, to look for resources. It, it certainly sounds fascinating. So, let, but but let me back up and make sure I, I I caught the details here. So, the the folks in New Mexico uh, studied ants and and came up with an algorithm that they believe sort of is analogous to how ant 
the ants they studied operate in the wild, right? Yes. And this is the algorithm we're talking about. And if I remember correctly from reading about this somewhere, um, the way ants actually operate is they leave these trails of chemical pheromones um, as they walk around looking for whatever stuff in my kitchen or something. And when they leave they, the pheromone when they're carrying something home. Right. And so the pheromone is always a trail back to where someone found food. Yes. Ah, yes. Okay. And so the, the analogy, the analogous thing with your robots would be somehow the robots would remember or leave some indication for the other members of the swarm to go, Hey, I found water. So you go out there and get water. If, if it's water we're looking for. Yeah, the using using the pheromone trail in a swarm of Mars robots would be useful in a case where one robot needed to ask for help from hundreds or thousands of right. other robots, and you didn't want them, or if you couldn't have them all communicating together, or you just didn't want to design it that way for scalability. Right, like maybe the radio. If you could, you could imagine them doing using radio for communication, but maybe that'd be right. difficult because they're little tiny things or and low right. degree than that kind so of the, thing. Yeah, so the example that we kind of thought of was that the range of the radios was was small, with, um, yep. and so that uh, the robot that found a resource when it when it actually brought it home, you know, the very first piece, right. it could tell the lander where the where the um, the resource was, and then could go it could go back um, and start uh, collecting more, and then as the other robots come home the lander would tell them, go here, this guy needs your help. Mm -hmm. And so it would be it would be a one to one communication versus a one to hundreds type right, of communication. Right. right. So so uh since we are since since our audience is mostly uh software engineers, tell me a little bit about the software running uh in your prototype ants, your prototype mining uh scouts there. Um what were you, what kind of hardware were you guys using? What uh, what were you developing in that sort of thing? Well, I want to um, kind of uh, caveat um, by saying that um, different projects at NASA have different levels of um, you know what's the word I'm looking for. Um, some projects are more more loose and yeah. and lean and agile, and some projects are are very strict and you know not not agile at all, but they want it that way, you know. Right, right. Um, and so um, the Swarmy project was a very low budget, very um, small team, a very loose, very agile project. Um, you know, we had start date, we had uh, you know like maybe a, a midterm kind of tell me how you're doing kind of report that was right. due and and then a final you know what were your results kind of report that was due and we didn't have a lot of um uh, a lot of attention while we were working nor did we have um people telling us what software we had to use what software or what hardware we had to use any of that stuff um and so due to our 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 small budget small team and due to the fact that the hardware for the robots was not um really important for this project, right, right. you know, what kind of hardware. We just needed a mobile platform that could drive around in our parking lot. That was basically our, our own imposed requirement. Um, so it didn't have to, you know, drive off-road and, you know, up hills and around over rocks or anything like that. So we just went online and found uh, some hobby robot uh, websites um, and got all of our parts online and built these robots. I will say, if your if you're listeners... Uh, you know, really get excited about a project like this and want to build their own, um, you know, robots that are similar. The Swarmy project actually spun off a collegiate competition, a oh, collegiate right. competition called the NASA Swarmathon. And uh, the same um, university that we originally collaborated with and partnered with, the, the folks that uh, came up with this ant-inspired algorithm that we tested in our Swarmy project, um, they're actually running the NASA Swarmathon competition every year, and um, they are posting um, online the uh, um, – it's basically the robot is open source. Um, mm -hmm. So they, they give you a parts list, and, um, you know, they're, they, uh, uh, they're um, 
they're not super cheap, so you'd, you'd really probably need to be one of the, you know, really uh, serious into this um, in order to spend that kind of money. I don't want to say a number because I don't remember exactly how much they cost, but it was uh, it was on the order of uh, thousands, plural, okay. I think, of, of U.S. dollars, yep. um, if I remember right. So, um, but if anybody's, you know, uh, really wants to get into it, um, all the all the uh, instructions for for building these things, the parts lists that we use for the competition for the competition robots, and even the software. This is the exciting part for me. Even the software that University of New Mexico kind of came up with as a base baseline piece of code for all the teams to start with, and then they actually uh, change that code and put in their own searching algorithm. Um, that's all free and available online at the NASA Swarmathon website, which is pretty awesome. Okay, well, we will definitely get links to that and put them in the show notes so that people can, can find them. I certainly know that I'm going to have a look myself. Terrific. Um, yeah. Um, well, that's, that is fantastic. Um, so, so tell me, what does... Um, I don't quite know how to, how to form this question in my mouth or my head but what 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 does it feel like to to be working on something and i and i realize that you're working on a research project and there's probably lots of research projects and it's a long long way to mars but what but somewhere in the back of your head there's got to be the feeling or the thought that maybe some of the stuff that i'm doing will actually uh you know, find some version of itself driving around on Mars in 20 years or something like that. And I just, mm -hmm. what does that feel like? Well, um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to total, totally claim that, uh, you know, even if, uh, even if my particular small little, um, swarmy research project, um, wasn't the genesis, you know, it didn't actually kick off uh, whatever project ends up actually going to Mars. Sure. I'm going to claim as long as uh, as long as uh, there's more than one robot of the same uh, model uh, <laughs> landed simultaneous on Mars, I'm going to claim that it was my idea. There you go. <laughs> That's what I'm going to tell my parents and all my friends. Um, there's actually, so um, the Swarmy project, you know, may or may not... Uh, be something that NASA decides, you know, NASA headquarters up in Washington, D.C. Yep. It may not be something that, that that part of NASA decides to fund someday um, in order to um, find resources or to collect resources using a, a swarm of small robots. But uh, there are some other um, projects um, at NASA that uh, I've worked worked on and my coworkers are, are, are currently working on. Um, that actually um, have po possibly what I think is a higher chance of actually becoming a real mission. I talked about um, the, uh, the the rocket fuel factory that uh, we are eventually hoping to, to send to Mars. Um, part of that rocket factory is an excavator that has to go out in the field and excavate and dig up the, the ice. Right. And... Um, there's a robot that uh, I'm I'm the software lead on that we call Razor, mm -hmm. and that stands for Regolith Advanced Surface Systems Operations Robot. It's a little bit of a backronym where we wanted it to we wanted the acronym to sound cool, but um, I, I would have never guessed that not in a million years. <laughs> Sometimes we do that at NASA because everything's an acronym, so you might as well have your acronyms sound cool, right? Yeah. Um, well, this 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 razor robot um, was designed by um, the guys in the lab that I work with, um, and it's a it's a mining robot, but it is very small and it's very lightweight. So when you think of mining here on Earth, you think about digging in the dirt or digging in rocks um, here on Earth. You think right. about really really big, really really heavy equipment because you need the weight um, and you know lots of pressure on the ground in order to you know, manipulate the, the dirt like that. And so obviously because every every kilogram, every ounce even that we send to Mars is is very precious and very costly, we have to be thinking about ways to dig on the moon or dig on Mars um, using very lightweight equipment. And so um, 
we've come up with a robot that has lots of very small scoops, um, and it has it has digging drums on the front and the back. Mm-hmm. And when when both of those digging drums um, basically start digging simultaneously, um, the horizontal digging forces actually cancel out, and the robot actually doesn't feel um, oh, the horizontal digging forces yeah, yeah. at all. There's there's a video online that you can link to that uh, makes it clear. It's harder to it's harder to explain in words than just right, to, to right. watch a video. No, I think it's 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 sort of like if I. If I have two shovels and I'm digging to the left and I'm digging to the right, then the forces kind of cancel out, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, in, in some sense they can Some of them cancel mm-hmm. out, I would guess, right? Mm-hmm. And even the forces, like um, you know, in in low gravity, like on the moon, if you if you jumped up in the air, you you'd go really really high up because the gravity is less there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see that on the you know the old Apollo um, Saturn uh, or uh, Apollo mission videos. And the, the gravity is also on Mars is lighter than it is here on Earth because Mars is smaller. And so uh, if you if you push your your if you push a digging arm down into the soil, um, you're potentially just your robots just potentially going to fly up in the air right. um, and fly away from that digging that digging force. And so. We've actually um, run some tests in our lab where we lift up on the robot um, with a controlled amount of force in order to simulate that the robot is on Mars and it weighs, you know, a lot less than than it does. Or the, to simulate that the robot's on the moon, we actually, um, for one test, we actually lifted up um, the entire weight of the robot to simulate that um, it was in zero g. Right. And. Because of the way that um, this regolith, this crushed volcanic rock, um, because of the way it behaves mechanically, it's kind of sticky when you try and dig into it. It kind of, um, the particles are very jagged and they kind of fit together like puzzle pieces. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if, if your digging implement is designed properly, you can actually use that um, force and it'll actually suck your robot down to the ground while it's digging. Um, oh, and so we're really we're really excited about the uh, the possibility um, uh, for a robot of this design to um, be the one that NASA eventually picks, hopefully, to go to Mars and start digging up the the ice sheets that uh, just made the news recently. So, so um, I, I'm going to ask you a question, and I suspect maybe you don't know the answer, and that's okay. But I I have to ask. So how much? So if we're if we're we have the factory on Mars and it's producing rocket fuel. Are we talking hundreds of pounds or kilograms? Are we talking tons? Like how much rocket fuel do you need to get home from Mars? Do you, do you happen to know that? I'm just, I'm trying to get a, a feeling for the scale of this, this thing. I wish, I wish I knew. And now I'm, now I'm going to have to do the research and find out. Um, and it's, uh, if we, if we, uh, find out, we should link to it in the show yeah, notes yeah. so that, uh, because the audience is probably yeah. <laughs> going to be mad if we don't tell them. <laughs> as as you say, when I think mining, I think of I think in fact like the world's biggest uh, like dump trucks and things are used in mines. You know these things with wheels bigger right. than your average automobile and that and that kind of thing. And clearly, at two hundred and thirty something to one, you are not sending one of those to Mars. You know? <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. And the the funny thing about those large um, dump trucks, um, I don't know if your audience knows this, but a lot of those are are automated. There there's not a human in the cab. I, in in a lot of these mines, they're completely um, autonomous. Well, the um, my, my, our audience probably knows it, but I did not. <laughs> <laughs> and the you know, but it's not a perfect system. There's a lot of you know dust that's kicked up when these uh, when these vehicles drive around these these you know mm-hmm. dry mines, and so the vehicles can't follow each other very closely, which is probably probably a good thing. But if your whole your whole goal is you know to make as much money as possible, you know you're going to want these things to be as efficient as possible. These all these trucks and the mining equipment. Um, and so we've actually collaborated with uh, with one of these uh, companies that, that um, is putting sensors on these mining trucks in order to make them autonomous. Um, 
to try and figure out ways to um, improve their sensors or maybe um, do some sensor fusion between different sensors to actually come up with, with more data than they had um, from just the sensors individually because, and the reason NASA got involved in that is because um, when we start driving robots around on Mars, we're going to kick up dust um, or, or on the moon even. Um, and because the gravity is lighter there, the dust is going to stay airborne for longer. So right. NASA, NASA will have the same problem. So if we can solve the problem here on the ground, um, hopefully we'll be able to use that technology on the moon or Mars someday. So, so, so one of the things that I think uh, uh, certainly I know, but perhaps folks in the audience don't, is that we are not talking about uh, when you're when you're talking about mining things on on Mars. Say we're not talking about a remote controlled anything the way you have a remote controlled car maybe in your garage where you're controlling it directly. This is not. We're not talking about machines that someone on earth is saying okay now go over there and do that it's machines that have to have some level of independence uh, you're you're completely right and i should have mentioned that because um the uh the time it takes for a command to get from the surface of earth to the surface of mars is about 40 minutes no it's about 20 minutes and then it takes 20 minutes for it to go all the way you know for a response right, to go all trip. the way back to work so the yeah. round trip is 40 minutes um, and, and that changes, you know, you'll hear different numbers because it depends on how far Earth and Mars are away from each other. Right. Well, but, there, uh, I, I think there's a point where you can't do it at all because if the sun is between Earth and Mars. Um, right, yeah. right. There is there is a little blackout period yeah. there. Um, and so um, all the robots that that I'm talking about sending to Mars before we have human explorers and human colonists there, um, Unless we need them to be super, super slow and super, super careful, which is exactly what Curiosity is designed for, right? Curiosity is there right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it does have a certain level of autonomy, but it's just uh, just to a certain degree because every every night the JPL engineers and scientists figure out what, what commands are going to send to the robot the next day. And so they basically come up with a, a day's worth of task list for the robot each day and send it to the robot every, every morning. Um, so there's a level of autonomy there, but um, you, can't, you can't say, um, you know, if we were sending a robot that we wanted to, you know, spend all day and all night excavating back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, you're... You, that's more complex than just sending a, a simple um, sequence of commands to make a robot drive 10 meters in a day or something like right. that and, and perform some experiments on, on some rocks. I don't want to minimize what, um, what NASA is doing with the, the Curiosity robot. It is so awesome what they're doing, but, th but that robot is, is designed to be human commanded at least you know once a day in order to give it its... Right. Uh, um, its sequence of commands, but um, when we, if we want robots that are that are out there and performing and working 24/7, and um, if they encounter a rock, they need to be able to go around it um, and not just stop and ask for help from from you know the earthbound controllers. And so the the swarmy the prospecting robots that um, we've been researching the razor excavation robot right. um, that we've been researching and testing in the lab. Those are all plans to be completely autonomous. You just start, start them up and then, you know, several times a day you might get status, um, you know, downlinked from, you right. know, one of the orbiting Mars uh, probes, um, one of the orbiting satellites. But um, if you, they you, encounter problems, they, they need to have the smarts to um, work around them um, or, uh, the the alternative is that they just stop and and wait for the humans yeah. back on Earth to tell them what to do next. Right. You 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 can't control them rock by rock and pothole by pothole. They have to have some level of uh, local intelligence to do their thing uh, efficiently. That's exactly right. And Curi I should say that Curiosity does have um, an auto drive function that mm -hmm. can, you know, drive around potholes and drive around rocks and, and that sort of thing. And so they're actually 
Um, that's the first time we've done that on Mars um, uh, with with an autonomous robot on Mars. Right. Um, it does drive very slow. It's designed. It's on purpose. It's it's designed to drive very slow because that gives it really high torque. Um, and so, but you know the 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 robots that are going to be digging and going out into the field and coming back to the lander and then and then making multiple trips, we might need those to go much faster. And yeah. so we might need uh, slightly different technology or or a different level right. of, of autonomy in those robots. Right. You know, I have to ask. Um, so the film The Martian. Yes. What do you think? Love it. Yeah. So, I, I read the, I read the book and so did most of my coworkers before the uh, movie came out and we loved it because you know there's so much detail in that book about the you know the engineering process and and why they did certain things certain ways and you know the chemistry and the biology and um, and then you know usually when you've read a book and then you watch the movie um, <laughs> a lot of people are just dis- disappointed because you know there's so much so many great things in the book that they can't put in the movie right but uh myself and most of my coworkers just loved that movie you know almost as much as the book obviously you can't put all the detail in but uh i think they did a great job i I thought so so like you i read the book and then i saw the movie um and I, i i'm of course much less qualified to judge whether it was accurate or not but the thing I really, I liked a lot about the book, and then I just loved about the movie, the thing for me that made the movie different from most movies that you see, is they were willing to put some of the details into the movie uh, and still make a fun, interesting movie. But there was actual, I mean, there was math in that movie. When when do you You're ever right. see that, you know? Um, You're right. There was real engineering, real yeah. science, and real math. And, and you know, it didn't put everybody to sleep. So it was, um, they did a, a great job of, of putting that all together. Yeah. Um, integrating it all. Yeah. So in general, are you a science fiction fan? Do you... Uh, Generally yeah. like that kind of stuff. Yeah, I like most of it. Yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, I've some of my some of my friends and coworkers are are more picky than I am, <laughs> and they pick on some of the things. You know, some of the technical things, but I know it's entertainment, so uh, I usually let let a lot of the stuff slide mm-hmm. that my friends are picking on. <laughs> do Do you think that that science fiction? I, so I grew up reading science fiction and ended up being an engineer and then a programmer. And it's always seemed to me that it was the effect of sort of reading about uh, people doing things with science when I was a kid and in whatever science fiction I was reading back then that in part motivated me to do what I'm doing. I wonder, is is, is that at all does that at all sort of reflect in your experience? Do you think that that's true or, or maybe not? It's definitely um, motivational when you, when you read about science fiction things and it makes your, you know, it gets, it gets your creative juices flowing in your head and, and you extrapolate to, you know, to something else um, and start thinking about what you might be able to do, you know, in the future um, for whatever uh with with whatever technology you're thinking about in your head um but but on the other hand i do think that you have to your brain already has to be kind of wired that way um i'm i've always been a tinkerer as a child and i've always been you know interested in computers and software um and that i don't think that's because i read science fiction i think that's the way that my brain is wired so for me i know that uh I know that my I, I was uh, I was bent towards uh, science and engineering um, from a from a very young age, and uh, I was drawn to science fiction, um, possibly be, because I was bent that way, not the other way around. Yeah, that that's certainly true for me. I think I was possible. So I grew up in a house that had the old style fuses instead of circuit breakers. It was a really yeah. old house. Yeah. Um, and I think possibly I was the youngest person ever to learn to replace fuses in my house because I was the person who was always blowing them out. Um, and after a while, <laughs> yeah. after a while, my parents realized that a I wasn't going to set myself or the house on fire, and so they just showed me where the box of fuses was. <laughs> you know, that's uh, great. But uh, 
Yeah, um, so, uh, looks like we've been going on for a while, so let me ask you, is there anything else, uh, that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? Um, I'm looking at my notes, I, f I feel like we've, uh, covered the projects. Oh, I, I should mention the group that I work for. Sure, um, please. <laughs> we, uh, the group that I work for is called Swampworks. We, we, we're a lab at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, and we gave ourselves this really cool name, Swampworks. Um, we do research and development. We don't do anything that's production. So, you know, right now the Razor robot, the Swarmy robots, they're all um, research and development. Nothing, none of those are actually going to fly in space. If uh, NASA headquarters does decide to make them real projects, um, they will determine um, who, you know, which which groups in NASA will be in charge of, of you know, designing and building those robots. It might be JPL, uh, you know, it might mm -hmm. be JSC, it might be, might be, you know, the Swampworks folks. Um, you know, we're, we're, we don't, you know, these different groups uh, do different things. We don't fight with each other. We're just happy that the work's being done. A lot of times we'll actually collaborate and we'll all work on, you know, projects together, which is, which is pretty great. Um, but Swampworks has this, um, it's okay to fail forward. Um, kind of mantra we we learn from our mistakes and we try again um we're not you know swamp works group um proper is not actually launching humans to space um so you know if you're in a group that does that you you do not want to fail you want to have all these um s uh, all these systems in place and backup systems and safety systems in place um but we're a research lab um and so um we uh, it's okay to fail um, as as long as the the test is designed to you know make sure nobody gets hurt when the failure when the failure occurs. So when we test our our designs and our robots and stuff, um, we don't get mad or upset when things don't go right or if they fail completely. Um, it's just part of the learning process, and our management is is okay with the failure as long as we understand it. Um, and then our next cycle, we'll be able to fix that problem and, and move on. So we, we have we, we take risks in Swampworks that other groups wouldn't wouldn't be willing to take. Um, but it's smart risk taking um, and and innovation. We we take risks um, in order to innovate, which is a, a pretty great place to work. It really sounds like it. Um, well, I think that brings us to our final question, Kurt, which is, do you have some advice for us? Yes, I thought about that. And uh, um, the advice that really, um, the advice that popped into my head was back when I was first employed at NASA, my very first boss, um, he always told me, if you don't whistle on your way to work, and if you don't whistle on your way home, then you should probably start looking for a different job. And, you know, he wasn't being rude and he wasn't even suggesting that, you know, I quit NASA and go work for, you know, some, some other company or some other government agency. You can, um, if you're not happy with the group you're in, even in NASA, mm -hmm. maybe you're not in the right place. Maybe there's another group, you know, in the next building or another group one floor down from, from where you're working that are doing, um, different kind of work um, or a different level because there's different levels. Um, I talked about the research and development versus the operational stuff. Um, some people are really drawn to the operational stuff where everything is super strict and um, super um, risk averse. Don't want to take any right. risks right. because, you know, we don't want to um, hurt the very expensive um, flight equipment or we don't want to hurt the astronauts, obviously. And then there's the more Lucy uh, research stuff that, um, you know, as long as you protect your researchers, it's okay if the experiment, you know, has a failure and that sort of thing. So different people are drawn to, to different groups. So that was his point that, you know, if you're, if you don't feel like this is the right place for you, don't just, you know, don't just sit there and, and put up with it, you know, let your, let your boss know and maybe they can, um, you know, maybe there is a, an opening somewhere else and sometimes they'll even uh, these bosses will even swap you know one for one right one employee right. might you know these people might be wired opposite and that boss several years later actually put his money where his mouth was um, because he helped me move from a pure electronic 
um, and hardware group at KSC to a pure software development group at KSC. And once I got into a pure software development group, um, I never looked back. I've been doing software development um, for the rest of my career. And I've been there 27 years. Wow. Yeah. And it was only uh, about 20 of those are software and about the first six or seven were, were electronics and hardware. Well, that, that, that is really good advice, I think. If, you, uh, if you're not whistling the work, go find something else to do. I have to say, Kurt, for you, for you in particular, if you're not whistling your way to work, you're out of your mind. Uh, so. <laughs> that is true. Uh, well, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks, Kurt, for taking the time to talk to us, and we are so going to have to have you back on. This has just been fascinating. Um, You're very welcome, Russ. I would be glad to. Thank you for thank you for having me. Thank you for thinking of me. And it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. Well, it's been great. And thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognacast. The Cognacast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We are here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Kurt Loit, and you can find Kurt's blog at www.loit.com. That's Loit, L-E-U-C-H-T dot com. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson, Joe Smith, and Jarrett Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.